chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I'll beautify my beautiful house. Who are those that flee like a, like a cloud, that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring their children from afar, their silver and gold with them, the name, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful." Foreigners shall build your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall, be, shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of the nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. And instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I'll make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall be the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall be no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and this, in its time, I will hasten it. Have you ever wondered if this is it? <laughs> if this is all we get? Is this the best we're going to get? Uh, let's admit it, if we're honest. Um, even with the most positive spin on things, this isn't all it's cracked up to be, is it? Uh, we're dying. Every one of us are dying. 
feel like every message the last few weeks has begun this way, just so you know. <laughs> We're dying. Uh, naked you came from the womb, and naked you shall return, right? We're not taking anything with us. Our world is falling apart around us. Now, don't get me wrong, believers. We do get a real taste of God's goodness, don't we? And I would say this, boy, is the taste of God's goodness good, (laughs) right? We alone have tasted that true peace, that true joy, the true goodness of God, love, joy, peace that comes from God. But is there anything more than a taste that we have to look forward to? And the Bible says emphatically, yes. Yes, there is so much more than a taste that we get to look forward to. We don't just have hope. We have great hope. We have abundant hope. We have overflowing hope in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18. Listen to these words. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The suffering of this time is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits you, believer. Or how about 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Compared to what awaits us, this momentary affliction is fleeting, passing, almost like mist compared to the great heavy reality that awaits us in glory. If this is so, then let me tell, the, tell you today. Let me encourage the church. It is absolutely vital that you and I are aware of the promises of God and believe them if we are to live by faith. None of us can live the Christian life in a healthy way if we are not embracing the promises of God. We cannot remain faithful if we are not embracing the promises of God and the God who made the promises because the promises are only as good as the one who made them, right? So we need to know his character. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he has done and we need to know what he has said and has promised to us. God promises us throughout the Bible all these promises For our good, because he knows what we need. And boy, do we need them right now. When temptations come your way, for instance, and they will, you need to be armed with something better than the junk that the temptation is offering you. Because the offering is going to be paraded and it's going to be in appearance something that's going to be tempting to you. And you need to know that what God has for us is infinitely greater. 
that that temptation is foolish and stupid and will destroy you. By the way, this is what enabled Jesus to endure the suffering. It was the promises that awaited him. Listen to these words. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12 verse 2. The joy that was set before Jesus was the promises. Was the victory. Was the reward that he accomplished. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we any better than Jesus? Can we do better than Jesus? Do we not need the promises of God to endure? The answer is absolutely not. You need the promises of God. You are not better than Jesus. This passage gives us a picture of the full banquet we are looking forward to. God wants us to look at the banquet today and taste it and look forward to it. So first we come to the source of hope. The passage begins with a picture of the source or the means or the foundation of the future hope that awaits us. Our hope of God's glorious presence is pictured as coming like a beautiful sunrise, overtaking and dispelling the darkness that has prevailed over our lives in verses 1 through 2. And I'll probably only read these verses for sake of time, (laughs) but I got to read these. These are wonderful words. Listen to this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So let me give you a couple ways of describing what's going on here. One way of describing what's going on here is that of of a weatherman giving the weather report. Okay? He says, well, we've had uh, multiple days of gloominess and rain and darkness, and it's been downright miserable for a long time. But tomorrow, <laughs> what is coming is complete sunshine, <laughs> like you've never seen it before. In fact, it will blow your mind away how much sunshine there is. You won't even comprehend that there could be this much sunshine. And it'll be forever and ever and ever and ever. It'll be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then so on for the next infinite amount of time. Would you like that kind of forecast? Does that sound good? (laughs) Everything in the future looks sunny, not even a cloud in sight. Another way of describing this passage would be that of a sunrise. When was the last time you watched the sunrise? One moment it was dark, and the next moment this glorious light started breaking through the clouds, right? The sun swallows up the darkness and beautifies everything around us in startling colors. It's incredible. Well, in the last chapter, we read about the darkness for the first 15 verses, didn't we? The first, the verse 15 itself actually summarizes the whole first 15 verse as well. When it says, we hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. God is saying here, 
that this darkness is going to give way to perfect, blinding sunshine. Now, what was the darkness that covered the earth? And I'm sure you've already connected the dots here, but let us remind ourselves what this darkness is so that we're on the same page for sure. The darkness and gloom represented the effects of the sin of mankind. The result of sin was separation from God and His goodness. That is what darkness is. That's what every problem in this world is. That's what gloom and darkness represents. The darkness is the spiritual darkness described in Ephesians 2 verse 1 through 3. So what is this light that has now come? (laughs) That's the big question. What is this light now that we're looking at? And the light is a reference to the glory of God. And where do we see the glory of God? Where do we know the glory of God was manifested in? Where do we go if we want to understand and see the glory of God? The answer is in Jesus Christ. What does John 1 verse 14 say? That he is the light. Or John 8 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the blinding light that has come. The darkness dispelling sun rising, glorious beam of light that outshines all things is a reference to Jesus Christ and none other. It cannot be any other. (laughs) So what does it mean, therefore, to arise, shine, for the glory of God has risen on you? So this is saying for people to arise and shine, right? That's an interesting command to make, isn't it? It means you're to get up out of the darkness in the ashes, in the filth of this world, you are to shine the glory of God to the world through Jesus Christ to those around you. And when you are saved, that is what you do. That is who you are. That is what you have become. You've become a representative, a light that reflects not your glory, not your goodness, not the amazing you, but the amazing Christ who has saved you. And that's what your whole life has come to. That's what you're all about. That's what your life is directed towards. This is a command from God to get up and shine your light. To become who you are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how does the glory of God come upon God's people in the first place? And the answer is by God's sovereign power. God commands for his light to arise and shine on his people. And God sovereignly, effectually accomplishes that work. We are to arise and shine. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The coming of God's glory in his people is only because of the sovereign power of God through his word that accomplishes his purposes. And only God could accomplish that purpose. So what is this glorious hope? And that's what the rest of this chapter is about. It's describing the implications, I should say, of this glory. It's describing what the effect of this glory will have on us, on his people, 
What is the effect of this glory? What will it have on God's people? When God's glory arises on his people. In other words, these are God's promises. This is what our glorious hope looks like in the future. That we've tasted today and we'll see even fuller in the future. As God consummates his promises. So we're just going to go right through and hit the main categories. Because this is crazy. (laughs) This is one thing after another thing. And it almost drives you mad trying to categorize them. Just so you know. (laughs) You almost had an insane pastor coming up with this. (laughs) Maybe he is insane. God promises to make his people attractive. Those who are once hostile to God are now being attracted to God's people because God's glory is shining through them. It says, look up and see, in verse 3, he will make you attractive to the nations so much that the nations and the kings will come streaming to you. They'll come streaming to you as they see the light of the glory of the gospel shining through your life. That's verses 3 through 4. And then he will make his people so attractive that those from the farthest corners will be drawn to them. Verses 8 through 9. The coastlands. And in fact, the picture here is of this billowing ship coming from the far seas, coming in, right? To God's people from far away, attracted to this light to this glorious light of the gospel and bringing their valuable treasures with them. Like God's people, we were once anything but attractive. We were not beautiful. We were forsaken. Like Israel, all God's people were filthy, rotten due to sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were rotting corpses. But God... And his goodness is in the business of transforming his people. God is making his people attractive to the world so that he is compelling the nations to come to his gospel. And we see this at the beginning of Acts, don't we? It is glory, the glory of God through his people That is attracting people because the gospel is attractive. The gospel is what makes us loving, caring, peaceful, patient, joyful. We love God and we love people. We live lives that are repentant and holy. We worship God in truth. We speak the gospel. We proclaim it. And this is what Jesus said when he said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 16. The church has the duty and the privilege of reflecting Christ to the world. What an awesome privilege and what an awesome responsibility. God also promises, secondly, to provide for the external needs of his people. The nations will generously give to you from out of their abundance in verses 5 through 6. From all the corners of the world are all the treasures 
and the goodness and the valuables being brought. The wise men who brought their gold and frankincense and myrrh were kind of a prefiguring picture of this, of this great event that we're seeing right here. And we will see the final fulfillment of this in Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26. It's amazing in this chapter how much is paralleled in Revelation 21. And we can see that this same event is being fulfilled right there in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. Amazing. The nations will also give of their service in building the walls that they once torn down in judgment. So once again, this is the God providing for his people from the nations in verse 10. God used the nations to judge his people, although they were unaware of what they were doing. God struck them and brought them into exile, right? The very same foreigners who worked to tear down the walls will now gather them, now build up their walls, right? the walls of the city, the very walls that they tore down. We see a partial fulfillment in Nehemiah 2, verse 7 through 8, but that is not the fullness of it. I think Ephesians 2, verse 13 gives us a clue of what we're talking about here, that we are fellow citizens of the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. God is building up his edifice, his building, and we are stones in that building. The nations will bring so much wealth that the gates will not be able to shut day or night. Imagine that in verse 11. Imagine so much wealth being brought into the city that there's not a moment where the gates can even be shut because there's caravan after caravan after caravan, just an endless sea of people, of travelers with caravans and goods, bringing them into the kingdom of God, right, from the nations. Kind of like going to Walmart when it's super busy, right? You can't even shut the doors. It says here, the nations will bring the very best material, material available to beautify God's sanctuary in verse 13. Lebanon, Cyprus, plain and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary and to make the place of my feet glorious. These are the best of materials that, that are possible to use. God is going to bring the best of the best of the best to make his sanctuary beautiful. The nations and kings shall nourish and sustain God's people as symbolized, and notice this crazy symbolism here, as a baby sucking milk and nursing at the breast of its mother. And that's verse 16. They are going to sit back and drink of the nations. You know, a baby doesn't have to do anything, right? A baby just sits back and enjoys the free meal that God has provided. The fatness of the provision, the health of the milk. And so will the nations give to God's people. The great and powerful will care for God's people. Nations and kings will give. God will provide even better than the best materials for the city in verse 17a. Notice instead of bronze, gold. Instead of iron, I mean, bronze is a pretty good material. 
If you're going to build a city out of bronze, that's pretty great. That's amazing. That's like the best you can possibly think of or imagine. Instead of iron, silver, iron's really good. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. So this is not just the best. This is even better. This is greater than anything we could imagine. One commentator said this is the first city made of steel. (laughs) This is incredible. The symbolism here is amazing and glorious. If this is true regarding our future, then what kind of people should we be? Notice Ephesians 2 verse 7 says something very similar to this to us. It says that God saved us, and this is the reason he saved us. Listen to this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. That is why God saved us. To show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How rich is Christ? How much treasure does he have? How much can he give? Immeasurable. And therefore, we should have joy that is unsurpassed. We should be the most reverential people and the most joyful people. And those are not at odds with each other, by the way. Those are not at odds with each other. People should come and say, God is in this place when we gather together because we love this God. And we take him seriously. And yet we are bubbling over with joy. And that's what it says here. God also promises to provide for the internal needs of his people. God will bring praise out of the hearts of the nations, according to verse 6. Notice the praises of the Lord. This is something that God does, and he brings praises to his name. This comes from a proper transformation of God. God will cause worship of the nations to be acceptable and pleasing to him. In verse 7. And we don't think of that as being radical oftentimes. We read verse 7 there. We don't think of um, acceptable worship from the nations as being something that's amazing and profound. But it is. It is. In fact, when the nations came to worship God in the temple, they defiled it. They made it unclean. They weren't allowed to go into certain places. The, the place of the Holy of Holies. They weren't allowed to go into certain places. And yet now their worship is going to be acceptable to God. It's going to be pleasing to Him. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing. That's profound. And the only reason that this is possible is because of the cross. It's because of what Jesus did. It's because Jesus has brought us, Jews and Gentiles, to Himself, right? Through the same instrument, the cross. That is how He brings us to Himself. That's how He draws us near through dealing with our sin and bringing us into his presence. God will also transform every one of his people people, into the inward condition of righteousness from unrighteousness. He will make us righteous. That's what it says in verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. And then the, the, the outcome of that is they shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. In verse 21. God is committed not only to the outward needs of his people, 
not only to the worldwide transformation, but also to the inward needs of his people. God will make his people righteous. And honestly, there is ultimately no good that can be done for anyone until they are made righteous. It is absolutely essential, and that is the greatest good that could be done for any of us. And God is the one who does that. God also promises to provide eternal security for his people. The fact that the gates will not be shut day or night represented perfect security in verse 11. You know, only if there's no danger can you never close the doors, right? Imagine leaving your doors open at night and leaving your cars open all the time, wherever you go. Well, you'd have to be pretty secure and pretty safe in yourself or not want anything you have, right? (laughs) Well, it says the gates won't be shut. They'll be open. No war, no plundering, nothing. And the reason there'll be no enemies to fear from the outside is because all who do not serve them will perish and be laid to waste. Now, that's confusing, isn't it? Verse 12. Immediately, that's kind of shocking. Everyone who won't serve them will be laid to waste, will be destroyed and defeated. It says here that the status of every nation depends on how they treat God's people. Is that true? How can God cause someone to perish simply for not serving God's people? How can that be? And the answer is, the reason is because the attitude of the nations towards God's people reflects their attitude towards God. How they treat God's people is how they treat God. You know, that's a searching question for each one of us, isn't it? Do you realize that how you treat God's people is ultimately a reflection of how you think of God? Even the least, if that were even possible, of the saints. How you treat them is ultimately a reflection of how you treat God and how you think of God. What a searching, searching, and important question we can ask ourselves. What do we think of God? And how is that reflected in how I treat his people? All who do not honor God through serving his people are in rebellion against God and will receive eternal judgment. Here is a warning for those who do not serve God's people and do not serve God. How important is it that we are connected to a church? Because we want to be. Because we want to be connected to a church and are serving God's people. What this means is that God's triumph will be complete and absolute because when everyone who does not serve God's people are gone, there will be no enemies left to fear. His triumph will be complete. And that's what it's saying here, is that the triumph will be complete. There will be no enemies at all. God will also protect the people by giving them the most loving and caring leaders. Listen to verse 17b. I said I wouldn't read anymore, but I'm just going to read this. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. When we think of taskmasters and overseers, we think of difficult and hard taskmasters. But here they'll be named peace and they'll be named righteousness. In other words, they will care for you. Your leaders will care for you. They will love you. They will take care of you. You'll want them to be over you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? They'll help you and care for you. God will also prevent sin from ever entering into the city. That's what it means, I believe, when it says, you shall call your walls salvation in verse 18. I don't think that's physical walls it's talking about there. To have walls that are salvation, I believe, means that sin cannot enter. That you are eternally protected. 
as one man said, that Satan can't slither through the cracks in the walls. There's no way that sin can enter. You are eternally secure in God and his kingdom because the walls are salvation. You are saved in this kingdom. What an awesome thought. It is not possible to sin. And that's better than it was in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? God's kingdom is better than it was at creation because it will not be possible for you to sin. And as we will get to, the light will be the sun. You will not need the sun any longer. God will also make his people righteous, verse 21. We already talked about that. This means that the church has nothing to fear. God will protect her. We can be bold witnesses today. We know what God has for our future. There's nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. Trust in God, rely on him. Taste and see that God is good. And think about the beautiful banquet that awaits us. God also promises that there'll be no more need for the Son. He will be the Son. What an amazing thought. Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That just confirms that that's what we're talking about here, that, that we're looking at an early description of that final Jerusalem that will encompass the whole world. God finally promises to exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And I'm just going to call your attention to verse 22. The least shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. And isn't that the way God works? The smallest, the, the humble are exalted, and the exalted are humbled. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's what salvation is. Christians are humble because humility has everything to do with your position before God. And ultimately, it has nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> it has everything to do with your position before God. If you make up your own God, you are the most prideful person. If you bow before the God of the universe and you confess that he is Lord, then you are humble, as humble as you could be. It has everything to do with your position before God. And so God is going to exalt the humble, the saved, those are his people, and bring them into exalted position. And that's what we see here. And the Lord says he will fulfill it. I am the Lord and it's time I will hasten it. God is the one who does this. One important question that we don't have time to really answer in this passage is how literally are we to take these images? And I just want to call your attention. We don't want to over-literalize these things. Nor do we want to um, over-symbolize things, right, either. But clearly when it talks about um, nursing at the breasts of kings right? No one takes that literally, right? We know what he's talking about. It's biologically impossible, right? And so we need to understand that this is, there's a lot of symbolism in here, but it's talking about true spiritual realities, right? It is literally true spiritual realities. Even the sacrifices that are made or the temple worship that's acceptable the, the, all that stuff. Jesus is the final sacrifice. There is no going back to temple worship. The words are used 